Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hard Tech episode 10, a history of military chow. I am your host Spartan and with me are my co-hosts Knight and Walla. Hey there, folks. I hope you brought your hard tack. Of course. Certainly did. <laughs> what the I hell was that? Loud. <laughs> it's not rocks inside a container. It's my pre-prepared hard tack. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> same here, same here. <laughs> yeah, so if you can already tell for this episode, we each made our own hard tack. Considering it was the inspiration for the podcast name, we thought, you know, we should celebrate episode 10 by paying tribute to what truly keeps warfighters on the battlefield. Ciao. Let's get into it. Hard Tack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your apron, secure your combat spork, and prepare to take a bite out of this episode of Hardtack. As a reminder to our listeners, if you would like to continue or add to the discussion from this episode, or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, as well as the Hardtack Podcast, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All can be found through our link tree, listed in the episode description, or you can just search Hardtack Pod. That's one word, on any of those platforms, and you'll find us pretty easily. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please take time to leave us a review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Okay, so big development for the pod, folks. In about one week's time, we will have some merch available for sale through Instagram. Uh, we're not going to do anything crazy, but we'll have some hard tax stickers to start with. My sister-in-law was kind enough to print us out some stickers for the pod as she runs her own small business. Huge shout out to Stephanie and her business, Wild Soul Designs, for hooking us up. You can find Wild Soul Designs on Instagram by searching wildsoul underscore designs, where you can browse a variety of handmade shirts, hair accessories, and more. Our first two stickers are actually really solid. We have the hardtack logo, as you see in our show's thumbnail, and the second is a callback to episode six, the Soviet-Chinese spy wars, and thank you, Knight. It features meaty Sputnik in all of its glory. We mentioned it in episode uh, six, and we know some of you have asked for it, so we are making good on that promise, and we will be bringing meaty Sputnik 
to you. All right, Walla, you are up. Please kick us off with a history of military chow. Military chow is actually a very important topic in military history. Food is sustenance, it keeps us alive, it keeps us energized, and it keeps us happy. In the context of military history, it can also determine the outcome of, of a battle. There is a phrase that can be attributed to both Napoleon and Frederick the Great that really captures this. It goes something like, quote, an army, like a serpent, goes upon its belly, end quote. Essentially meaning an effective army is a well-fed one. In this episode, the squad and I will discuss and eat our way through some hard tack. We will also look into a bit of military chow's history and break down specific rations from the United States, Japan and Australia. Soldiers serving on the front often relied on bread and salted meat as their staple diet. This was way before the invention of the tin can in the 19th century and appetization. Appetization is a preservation process for long-term storage of food. It involves the sterilization of food in an airtight container by heat treatment, followed by hermetic sealing. So let's go a little bit further back here. According to an article on military rations from alimentarium.org, the first professional army in the West belonged to ancient Rome. Soldiers within this army received rations of two pounds of bread a day, meat, olive oil, and wine. There's nothing like a bit of alcohol to keep the soldiers' spirits high in battle, eh? And honestly, that seems like a pretty decent and diverse set of rations for that time. It's interesting, they also used to carry these small hand mills, which was a part of their basic equipment that could be used to grind grain. They used it to make what is called Paximadian. So Paximadian was a hard, dry bread, which could be kept for a very long time. Sounds a lot like hardtack, doesn't it? Military rations were revolutionised in 1810, with the invention of the tin can by Peter Durand. During the First World War, iron rations were used on a large scale, and iron rations were essentially an emergency ration, which consisted of preserved meat, cheese, biscuit, tea, sugar, and salt. That's kind of an example of iron rations which were carried by all British soldiers in the field for use, though only in the event of them being cut off from regular food supplies. So there's a brief history of military rations. At this point, we should have a talk about our beloved hardtack. So what is hardtack? Hardtack is a military history podcast, and if you're not listening, you're missing out. It's also a ration. It's a flat, hard cracker made of flour, water, and salt. Holes were poked in the dough to make sure it stayed flat, and it was baked several times to remove any water. Hardtack wasn't the standard MRE, or meal, ready to eat, because it tasted great, but rather it was highly valued because it was nutritious, cheap to make, easy to carry, and it lasted a very, very long time. First mass-produced in Britain in the early 17th century, which might explain the blandness of it, because, you know, British history. Hardtack was the favorite food for explorers, <laughs> sailors, and soldiers, and was the standard staple until World War I. It is unclear when hardtack was first created. According to the Texas Historical Commission, which doesn't really count because it's Texas, the etymology of hardtack was coined by British sailors, although it has gone by many different names throughout history. Egyptian mariners called it Dora, while the Roman legions called it Bucellum. There were some very fascinating alternative names that were more descriptive. Some of those descriptive names were worm castles, molar breakers, sea biscuit, 
Muslin Biscuit, Pilot Bread, and Brewis, just to name a few. Hardtack. Boiled down, it's convenient, it's easy to make, but it lacks in flavor. When wet, it molded, hence our podcast slogan, remember to keep your hardtack dry. It was also prone to insect infestation. So now you know what inspired the nickname Wormcastles. Military troops would often dunk their hardtack in either water or coffee to make it soft enough to eat, or toss the whole ass biscuit in a fire to scare away all the creepy crawlies before they ate it. So with that in mind, everyone, let's take a bite. Let's go. Who's going up first? Who's going up first? <laughs> shot not. I just touched my nose, so shot not. All right, now you're up. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Definitely not what do you like mean, yeah. most people too. <laughs> yeah. Knight <laughs> says, yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's the review. That's it. Yup. Full stop. <laughs> so not great? I, no. I can definitely see the use. <laughs> You're so dismissive. Hardtack. <laughs> Excellent review. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Perfect. Very succinct. <laughs> okay, okay. I tell you what. So I made I made two different types of hardtack. Um, the first the first bit I made came from uh, americantable.org. I don't really have anything positive to say about this hardtack. The recipe resulted in and you you can probably hear it as I pick it out. Um, it's about the thickness of a tortilla chip. So yeah, it resulted in a tortilla chip. It, it called for a four hour bake time at 250 degrees Fahrenheit. It came out like a small wafer. I know it's not meant to taste great, but there was nothing really appetizing about this. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the recipe that came from americantable.org, which we'll list in our show notes. So I made a second batch. But the second batch turned out phenomenal. Uh, the second batch came from breaddad.com. Hell yeah. A, yeah. Oh, so you used the same one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> Epic name. The heart attack came out great. It, it looks wonderful. I'm going to take a huge bite out of this heart attack. I didn't. <laughs> Disclaimer. You no, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a raw bite out of it and then um, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. This is my hardtack crunch. Oh, that actually sounded like it hurt. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, it hurt a little bit. Oh, it's firm. It's crunchy. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, it's a jawbreaker, you know, or molar breaker, as they as they called mm-hmm. it, right? So um, the flavor is not terrible. If you've had a saltine cracker, it's not too far off. It's definitely harder. I think uh, molar breaker is is accurate. So for my hardtack, if you can hear it, um, I also referred to the recipe from Bread Dad. Thank you, Bread Dad. <laughs> um, I initially, because the recipe said it makes like 10 to 12 servings of hardtack, and I looked at that, I was like, oh, I don't really that want that many, especially if I if I hate it. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll just... I'll try to just make a couple um, and I was told to half all the rest, uh, all the ingredients. Um, and I did that for the flour, but completely forgot to do that with all the other ingredients like water um, and salt. Oh, no. and stuff. <laughs> so I ended up just 
making uh, the required amount anyway. Um, and half of them turned out really flower, like overflowered, and the rest it turned like there's a couple of, like folded bits and I don't know. It's a bit all over all over the place for me. Um, but let's try it. <laughs> Here's my hardtack crunch. <laughs> oh shit! Are you okay? It, it sounded like your teeth broke. <laughs> that was really, really hard. It's very flowery and yeah. salty, but I, yeah. I'm tasting more salt than I am flour. I agree. Yeah, definitely the yeah. salt. The salt comes through uh, mm. as the only real flavor <laughs> to to our <laughs> tag. I know. Like, I started tasting the salt. I was like, "Oh, there's taste in this. It's just salt, but it's like it's like a surprise almost." <laughs> I was expecting it to be like super, super bland, but. No, it's not as bland as it seems, and I think that the salt, you know, yeah. helps. All right, so there we have it, our beloved hardtack. Considering hardtack is essentially a universal military ration in one form or another, let's move on to a specific area of interest, United States military rations and history. Knight, over to you. Thank you, Spartan. So I took a look into the rations that the United States military would have had, and we'll briefly go over those rations from the periods of the Revolutionary War, the American Civil War, and modern-day rations. Let me start with rations in the Revolutionary War. For the Revolutionary War, there were three types of rations. Namely, there was the ration for each soldier per day, the ration for each company per week, and the per-soldier-per-week ration. For the soldier-per-day ration, there was allotted one pound of fresh beef, which could be substituted with a quarter, three-quarter pounds of pork or one pound of salt fish. In addition, there was to be either one pound of bread, or in cases where bread wasn't immediately available, one pound of flour. Now, if there was by chance no bread available or flour available, then the soldier would receive an equivalent amount of cornmeal. To round out the per day portion, each soldier would have one pint of milk and one quart of spruce beer. And then finally, we have each week, each individual soldier was given three pints of peas, which could also be substituted with either beans or vegetables, basically whichever of these were available, and then one half a pint of rice, which could be substituted with Indian meal of the same amount. One thing to note about all that I just said, this rationing system was only specified by the Continental Congress on August 8th of 1775. This does not account for how more local forces managed themselves before this official system was put in place. For instance, by June 10th, 1775, Massachusetts had a specified ration system of their own for their troops. Their daily rations were one pound of bread with half a pound of beef and pork, followed by one pint of milk, or it could be substituted with one gill of rice, one quart of spruce, or some malt beer, and one gill of peas or beans. As a weekly portion, there was to be six ounces of butter and half of vinegar. If pork wasn't available, the meat portion was to be substituted with one and a quarter pounds of beef. And once every week, one and one quarter pounds of salt fish were to be substituted for the meat portion. So basically, TLDR, there was a ton of variation as and ideas as to what should compose a soldier's ration before the Continental Congress decided to set a certain amount in the Revolutionary War. We'll then head over to the Civil War. And the Civil War was a very devastating war. 
and with that, complicated the food supply chains for both the Union and Confederate sides. Nonetheless, the Union had an established ration, and the Confederacy would just simply copy that ration list. Although post-1862, the Confederate ration was very smaller due to issues in transporting their rations to their own soldiers. Anyway, the established rations for the Union soldiers was one 16-ounce biscuit, and this biscuit could be a hardtack or some other type of cracker, or that could be substituted by 22 ounces of bread or flour, one and a quarter pounds of fresh or salt meat, or three quarter pounds of bacon. However, by June of 1864, that ration would be increased to adding an additional four ounces of flour and four ounces of hard bread, and also three pounds of potatoes. One thing that has to be noted is that as a soldier in the Civil War, troops would have to carry their own personal food on top of their weaponry and ammunition for fighting. A scientist by the name of Eben Norton Horsford attempted to develop a way to ease the burden of carrying food. On April 25th, 1864, Horsford presented his army marching ration, as he called it, to the Union Adjutant General. Horsford's presentation was eventually given to the Army Board consisting of representatives from the Medical Inspector, Quartermaster General, and the Commissary General. Along with them, the Surgeon General's office would also evaluate Horsford's proposed ration separately. Both of these groups concluded that Horsford's proposed ration was terrible, but the Army Board did nonetheless conclude that this ration should be tested to see if it actually would work. Eventually, in May and June of 1865, the first of Horsford rations were shipped off to New Orleans. What exactly was the composition of this ration? Well, it came in two parts, a bread and a meat part. The bread part was nine-tenths of roasted wheat coarsely ground, and one-tenth of which consisted of, quote, finely crystallized, not powdered white sugar, and a trace of salt, end quote. As for the meat part, I'm just going to honestly quote, Horsford described it as, it includes, in addition, the liver, heart, tongue, and kidneys together with the meat, and nutritive juices detached and extracted from the raw bones of the entire carcass, and the juices of the scrap lean meat adhering to the lump fat. The juices are carried down in vacuo, the lean meat all roasted and dried down to the juices are fixed, and with the seasoning resolved into a homogeneous whole of small mouthfuls. These are pressed into forms and varnished with gelatin. Each form or card will be about a foot square and two inch thick, and so grooved into squares that it may readily be broken into uniform blocks, each equivalent to two rations." End quote. So all in all, the ration would weigh about three ounces and was only four cubic inches contained in a sealed case. The result? Everyone that reported hated them. Some soldiers went so far as to refuse to eat the rations and they just preferred to hunt their own meals out in the country. One inspection that was conducted Sometime after the initial uh, transporting and giving them out, this inspection found that a quarter of a million of these rations were full of weevil and other worms, and suggested that the cases should have been airtight. And now we just, I don't know, skip a century and a half, and we come to today. And in today's time, there are a variety of types of rations for soldiers in the armed forces. There are primarily two categories individual and group rations. For individual rations, there's there's three types here. 
there is what's called the First Strike Ration, and this boasts nine menus, pocket sandwiches, ready-to-eat tuna and chicken, energy bars, powdered beverages, caffeinated gum, beef jerky, and a certain brand of applesauce, known as Zapplesauce. While the average rate for the First Strike Ration was two and a half pounds per ration, and just one First Strike Ration would equal a day's worth of food. Next, we have MREs, the meal ready to eat. These boast 24 menus, four that are vegetarian, entree slash starch, a crackers or bread, a spread, dessert snack, powdered beverage, accessory packet, and plastic spoon. These were average 1.5 pounds per meal, and three MREs a day equal a day's worth of food. All right, so that brings us to our final individual ration, the meal cold weather. This boasts 12 menus, pre-cooked dehydrated entrees, crackers, spreads, cookies, sports bars, nuts, powdered beverages, and accessory pack. This, this specific ration was made exclusively for soldiers in cold weather conditions. These were an average of one pound per meal, and three of these would equal a day's worth of food. And with that, we can now briefly just move into the group rations. So for group rations, there's group ration A, and those are just simply the fresh-like group meals that are just served to the soldiers in a company. Uh, you got, then you've got your group ration express, and those are just hot group meals without a cook. And then there was group ration M, which is a trained quality culinary specialist to provide meals, and that was exclusive to the Marine Corps. And with that, there's your modern overview of rations. All right, thank you very much, Knight. We're going to move on to Japanese military rations throughout history. We're going to look at Japanese war rations as they were in feudal Japan, World War II, and then we're going to switch over to current day, modern day, with some insight from a very good friend of mine. Food supply, as it applies to the Japanese army in times of war, is known as hyoro, their word for army provisions. Soldiers in ancient and medieval Japan had to pay their own expenses according to what they called Ritsuryo law. Without getting too much into Japan's social history, this concept functioned to support the Japanese caste system. Soldiers were soldiers, but having them pay their own expenses served to keep them just that, soldiers, and in their own class. Peasants and farmers produced crops, and the crops were taxed and used to move the cogs of the Japanese war machine from province to province. So historically speaking, let's start with feudal Japan. When shogunates and samurai characterized Japanese warfare and its culture. I'm only going to go as far back as the Kamakura period, which is 1185 CE for context. The common foot soldiers were known as the Ashigaru, literally meaning light of foot. So what we would call infantrymen in modern times. As already mentioned, rice was a staple in Japanese rations, and you will see that this has not changed in modern times. The Ashigaru, like Japanese troops in World War II, carried their rice with them on the individual level. The rice was usually wrapped in a white cloth and tied off at intervals for daily use. The string of rice was known as Nenju. If Nenju sounds familiar to you, you may be thinking of the prayer beads used in the Buddhist religion, uh, which they called Juzu. Nenju is a Japanese word for Juzu, and you would be correct in drawing that connection. The rice, wrapped in white cloth and tied off, was slung about the shoulder and looked like large white Buddhist prayer beads. 
The rice was parceled out to each soldier, not on a daily basis, but given in about three to four days worth at a time, and the soldier was responsible for their own consumption discipline. The rice was pre-soaked to soften it up so that when it came time to cook it, hot water alone would suffice and cooking the rice and reduce the cooking time. The rice was parceled out every few days for logistical reasons, but also, uh, much to, to my appreciation, to discourage a certain practice among Japanese troops, which was the brewing of a simplified sake known as camp sake. Yeah, we're talking alcohol. Sake is a rice wine, and too much rice meant that troops could ration off bits of their own ration to make alcohol. Uh, this sort of reinforces the alcohol and military stereotype. All right, we're going to move on to World War II. The source that I'm referencing here is from a Lieutenant Colonel Barker, A.J. Barker. He was a military historian and served as a regular infantry officer in the British Army from 1936 to 1958. The book that I'm talking about is uh, still critically acclaimed, uh, and it's, it, it's titled Japanese Army Handbook 1939 to 1945. According to Barker, the Imperial Japanese Army in World War II, such as the expeditionary forces in Burma and China, procured much of their food by commandeering local supplies. However, there were postings that were more remote and less a threat to Imperial Japanese Army soldiers' safety. Japanese troops had a bit more leisure time in this area and supplemented their rations with fish and game gathered through hunting and fishing. Barker states, quote, Fish was often procured by the simple expedient of tossing a grenade into a jungle stream, end quote. Uh, game and fish were then cooked either in mess tins or over fire and uh, bamboo shoots. Rice was rationed out among the troops and cooked in the morning. It was cooked by the individual soldier or for a small tactical team, nothing large scale. Each soldier of the IJA was responsible for cooking their own food. Rice was the most available and most valuable ration, and IJA troops carried it in a stocking of sorts that was open at one end so that they could easily pour it. One of my favorite books on World War II, I've mentioned this in previous episodes, is Japan at War and Oral History, uh, the authors of which are Haruko Taya Cook and her husband, Dr. Theodore F. Cook. There is a particular interview in this book that unshelved itself from my mental library when I was researching for this episode because I remembered someone mentioning their rice ration. The interview was with a man named Ogawa Masatsugu, a soldier of the IJA's 79th Regiment of the 20th Division, which was transferred from China to New Guinea in January of 1943. For reference, the New Guinea campaign took place between January of 1942 and lasted until August of 1945, just before Japan's surrender. Ogawa arrived there one year after the New Guinea campaign started and spent the remainder of his service in World War II in New Guinea, fighting, guess who, Australians. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for you, Walla, I wanted to mention a specific passage uh, out of this book uh, where Ogawa specifically mentioned the Australian military. And this is this is what Ogawa stated about the Australian military. I came to feel the Australian military was very strong indeed. They didn't want to have infantry battles. They wanted to leave the fighting to mechanized power. The Japanese military only had infantry. Our artillery had almost no ammunition. If we fired even one shell, hundreds came back at us. Please don't fire at them, we'd pray to our guns from our trenches. I had a sense then that one day... War would be fought without humans. 
just airplanes and artillery. War in which human beings actually shot at each other, where we could see each other's faces. That was over. What were we infantrymen there for? Only, if often seemed to me, to increase the number of victims. Wow. I just want you for reference to understand that this Imperial Japanese Army infantryman's perspective on warfare mm-hmm. and New Guinea during the Pacific War of World War II went from an idea of, of supremacy and invincibility to mm-hmm. we're not going to make it because of the Australian military. That's really telling for, for someone like that to say um, they're essentially frightened of the response of the Australian military at yeah. that time because you said, like, that's crazy. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah, so that's what Ogawa had to say about the Australian army during World War II. But he also has some things to say about rations and food uh, specific to the IJA and Papua New Guinea. The first was, quote, we ate anything, flying insects, worms, and rotten palm trees. We fought over the distribution of those worms. If you managed to knock down a lizard with a stick, you'd pop it into your mouth while its tail was still wriggling. Yet, under these conditions, a soldier offered up me his final meal of rice, and a soldier I met for the first time gave me half a taro root he dug up, end quote. So what we see here is the desperation that the Imperial Japanese Army and the service members faced during times of war. Moving on to modern Japanese rations. Modern Japanese rations aren't too far off from modern American rations, or MREs, right? Meal ready to eat, at least in packaging and consistency of the food. MREs come in these thick plastic pouches. The packages are they are very distinguishable. They're this like dull brown. One of my friends from Japan, uh, Shibuya-san, recently graduated from Japanese Ground Self-Defense Force, uh, or JGSCF, Reservist training. Uh, I want to give her a big congratulations. Uh, Shibuya-san, congratulations. I'm, I'm so proud of you. But I also needed to take advantage of her knowledge uh, and modern Japanese rations for this episode, seeing as that she was in training and graduated just yesterday, September 30th. She was kind enough to send me some photos and provide a little bit of detail about the rations that she consumed. The packaging looks similar to American MREs, except it's it's white, but it's still that very thick plastic. You can see it in the photos. The meals actually don't look all that bad, but I will say I'm really biased. And every photo that Shibuya-san sent, there was, of course, a rice bowl. Also pictured was a small can of mixed fruit juice. In most American MREs, we have some sort of carb, usually uh, this really dry bread that the package calls snack bread. Carbs in Japanese rations uh, equates to rice, and they're very lucky for that. Shibuya-san included a short blurb about the rations she ate just in the past week of training. From Shibuya-san, quote, They have many different kinds of rations. During this five days, I had three. Tariyaki-don, kakuni, which is stewed pork-don, and curry rice. They were all good, end quote. Uh, clearly, Shibuya had some variety, but it seems that these were the basic daily rations. I want to state that I do trust her judgment entirely, and again, I'm biased. So if she says they were good, I'm going to take her statements as accurate. Um, that's all I have on Japan and Japanese military rations. There's a lot more to it, and given Japan's lengthy military history all the way back into feudal Japan and even prior uh, more than enough is available for some endless discussion on Japanese military rations. 
My hope is that you now have some basic knowledge of military rations as it applies to Japan. Uh, it's fucking delicious. Anyway, uh, voila, it's go time. Please tell us about Australian rations and fried emu. <laughs> well, there definitely aren't any fried emu in military rations in Australian history, as far as I'm aware. I would like to start off by talking about Australia's beloved and very own form of hardtack biscuit, and that is the Anzac biscuit. So the Anzac biscuit is basically an army biscuit. It's also known as an Anzac wafer or Anzac tile, um, and it was a popular biscuit distributed amongst Anzac soldiers in World War One. So the Anzac biscuit had a long shelf life, which made it the ideal ration to be transported, especially across sea for a long period of time. It was eaten as a substitute for bread, although a substitute, it was not soft on the teeth like bread. It was very, very hard. So it's another biscuit that requires dipping into like a nice warm drink of your choosing. Some soldiers even preferred to grind them up and eat them as porridge. Father John Fahey, a Catholic padre serving on Gallipoli in World War I, was himself unimpressed with army biscuits. He wrote, quote, The man who invented the army biscuit was an unmitigated rascal. As, eat- as an eatable, there is little to choose between it and a seasoned gyro board, end quote. A, a gyro board, I-, I did a quick Google search of this, is essentially like, I think it's a type of wood. So it's like oh. a wooden board. <laughs> so he has very strong opinions about the army biscuit. So what is the Anzac biscuit exactly? So essentially, it's a traditional eggless sweet biscuit. It's made up of rolled oats, sugar, plain flour, coconut, butter, golden syrup, or treacle. Uh, which is a thick, sticky, dark syrup made from partly refined sugar, molasses, bicarb soda, and boiling water. Honestly, if you ask me, it's a fancy-ass kind of hardtack biscuit. I mean, it's got all these different ingredients other than just the regular flour, water, and salt. Um, In all seriousness, though, the Anzac biscuit is a really important biscuit for Australians. It's still made and sold in supermarkets to this day, and most households take the time to make the biscuits in commemoration every year on Anzac Day. Alright, so other than Anzac biscuits, um, the main rations for troops in Gallipoli mainly consisted of um, preserved meats, like bacon, Um, there was cheese and onions and biscuits and whatnot um they also had tea and jam and other assortments like sugar and salt pepper mustard but they also had um access to rum uh it wasn't always it was when it was available but also tobacco um so if you ask me the troops serving in Gallipoli were pretty uh uh well off for the time there were attempts to supplement this these rations with like frozen fresh meat shipped from Australia but the climate conditions meant that this usually arrived in they usually arrived in inedible conditions um potatoes too were withdrawn from the ration um when they were proved too expensive to ship uh while the British cheese supply supplies uh turned oily and unpleasant in the heat 
Two months into the campaign, supplies of bread arrived a couple of times a week from a field bakery on the island of Imbros. Many soldiers became creative in the way they used their rations, and even wrote home about their culinary expertise. An example is quoted in the Inglewood Advertiser in October 1915. So Lance Corporal J.J. Palmer wrote, Just a couple of recipes which have been tried in Gallipoli with great success. Somebody might care to waste the stuff in this their spare time. So he wrote about um, two different uh, recipes. One was a, a, what was called a dugout porridge, um, and ingredients included two meal biscuits, a large size, um, commonly known as dog biscuits, one mess tin half full of water, treatment, break biscuits to powder, put mess tin with water on fire, and when boiling, add powder and then stir for a while. Then flavour with milk and sugar, if available, otherwise jam marmalade plentiful. He then went on to write about French rissiles. And the ingredients included one tin of bully beef, any brand, a little bit of biscuit powder, a couple onions and a little bit of thyme to flavour. This grows plentiful about the hills. No need to add salt as the bully contains too much. Treatment, which is... The recipe chop up onions very small and mix the lot together have it just a bit sticky make into small pasties and roll in flour if one is lucky enough to pinch some of the beach without getting pinched himself fry well in lid of mess tin to get fat for same render down bacon from breakfast which was too fat to eat so that essentially uh, rounds up what it was like for australian soldiers in world war one in terms of military rations so how about world war two so in World War II, um, more specifically in 1942, Australian soldiers who were serving in New Guinea were provided with hot meals, which were cooked in unit kitchens, only when possible, that is. And the hot meals were essentially iron rations, um, which consisted of preserved meats, uh, biscuits, jam, if available, and tea um, was also issued as an operational ra- ration to men in the front lines who could not be served a cooked meal for various reasons and for men who were deployed on patrols. However, Australian soldiers were not always afforded the luxury of being provided with hot meals. This was often determined by the combat situation, coupled with factors such as terrain and weather that meant that soldiers on the front line often had to fight and survive on bully beef. So bully beef is basically a variety of meat made from finely minced corned beef in a small amount of gelatin and biscuits. Cooking was found to present uh, many problems. In the Ramu Valley, for example, and at high altitudes, wood fuel for cooking was usually damp and petrol was precious. All supplies of the latter had to be flown in and at best could only be used to kindle the wood. Native courage was scarce, though forward troops were still able to have two hot meals brought up from company kitchens by porters. Egg powder and baking powder were much in demand. The tropical spread of the ration was not really popular. Margarine was more desired. In certain localities, green vegetables were also obtainable, as in the Mount Hagen area, but only if air transport was available. The same difficulties were observed in the 9th Division, with powdered milk as those reported by the 7th Division Division forward units. Tea and sugar were in free supply, but serious wastage of tea took place through the breaking of plywood chests. Drums or tins were a preferable package and should be within the weight convenient for a porter. Sacks as a package were also found unsuitable for transport of rice. 
The men found that blue boiler peas grew moulds owing to the moisture. The same dislike of canned cabbage noted in the 7th Division was also noted in the 9th Division. Butter was popular with all troops, but was difficult to obtain except when when cold storage facilities were near at hand. Cheese was also liked and full rations were consumed. Bread from the field bakery was good, preferably in the form of rolls. So there we have a bit of an overview of military rations for Australian soldiers from World War One to World War Two. Now let's have a look at more recent times very briefly. And, and when I'm saying recent, I mean like the early 2000s for the Australian Defence Force um, and what they use in terms of um, military ration. So the Australian Defence Force, or the ADF, used three types of combat ration packs. The first one was called the CR1M Combat Ration one man um so this basically intended to feed one soldier for 24 hours um it consisted of two main meals and a midday snack and a number of sundry items it ranged from there was these huge menus by the way so i had to try and condense it down a bit it ranged from beef and gravy or beef mince with spaghetti, chicken curries as like the main meals. And then they would have like these soups with like vegetables and stuff. Uh, your breads and biscuits, confectionery spreads like chocolate. There was also tuna, grains and an assortment of fruits. So that would basically make one combat ration. The next one is the PR1M patrol ration. And that is also for one man. These were used by special, for- uh, special forces soldiers of the ADF and it was a combat ration pack produced in small numbers but had an important role for long-range patrol activities at the ADF. They had this either freezed or dried um, and that was and main meals they had like tuna mornay or veal italian, lamb casserole and savoury beef and that kind of went across um, these different menus. The lamb casserole sounds pretty flash for a military ration. I don't know why but I, I've never seen lamb offered as a protein in a military ration before. Yeah, well, <laughs> there you go. And then basically the rest of the menu would be also like an assortment of noodles, which I assume are dry, and other fruits and vegetables and pretty much very similar foods to the ration pack that I just mentioned. Lastly, we have the CR5M combat ration. And basically this was a combat ration pack for five people. It was a group feeding ration designed to feed detachments of three to three to five ADF members and for group feeding in situations where fresh rations couldn't be provided. And again, very similar menu to the others mentioned, the only difference being it would feed a lot more people. So yeah, that kind of summarises... Uh, military rations for Australian soldiers throughout history to to present times. All right. Thank you very much, Walla. And with that, this concludes episode 10 of Hardtack, A History of Military Chow. We hope your appetite is still intact after hearing about all of these delicious or not so delicious rations and MREs of the past. Check out the episode description for our sources and conduct your own research or take the time to make your own hardtack. Speaking of making your own hardtack, we wanted to give the listeners an opportunity to be a part of the show. We've shared a few links for hardtack recipes in the episode description. We will also post these on our socials. Here's what you can do. Make some hardtack and send us an audio clip, either through our email or through the Anchor website. Tell us what your favorite episode is or anything that you want to say about the show, and then take a nice, ear-shattering bite out of your hardtack. We will be sure to include submissions in future episodes at the end of the show. So please, send us in your hardtack crunch. We look forward to hearing from all of you. Next week, I will again be doing a solo episode for episode 11. 
which will be the first part of a two-part series on the bloodiest and last battle of the Pacific War, the Battle of Okinawa. Tune in. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.